Thank you, worship team, as always. So good to see each of you this morning. Um, you may have noticed some of our kids, our first through fifth graders. Uh, the majority of them are not in here. They went out at the beginning of the service. If you have a first or fifth grader that didn't get that notification, today is a little unusual. Uh, now is a time if you want them to join uh, the children's church, and that's down that hallway. The rest of us, uh, and those of you joining us online, thank you for meeting with us. Hopefully you have a Bible with you of some type, either electronic or old school like me. Uh, well, I have both. I do have both. But I'm using this one today because it has giant print in it. Matthew 25. So this is a new chapter for us. Matthew 25. If you would, locate that. And as you're turning there each week, because we're going through the book of Matthew, we begin with a review a little bit of where we've been. And so I don't always want it to be the same review and going quite as far back, so we're going to do a little less. Um, so here's the scene. It's a couple of, uh, we've got a few new people, first-timers or second or third time, which is great. Uh, you're going to have to jump in because we've been doing this for about three years. But anyway, um, we've been in this section for four previous weeks. So chapter 24 and 25 make a unit called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, about three-quarters of a mile away, looking back at Jerusalem. And his disciples, back in verse 3 of chapter 24, have asked him a question. So I'm going to cut to the last two of the three questions. What are the signs? What will be the sign of your coming? They want to know what will be the sign, Jesus, of your coming and of the end of the age. And so we've been looking at that in chapter 24. Uh, I share with... Uh, Brother Kyle, before the service, that I think chapter 24, along with Romans 9 and probably Romans 11, are probably the, the most difficult chapters I've, I've ever had to try to dive into. And so I'm really glad we're through with chapter 24, but uh, the Lord taught me a lot in it that I didn't know. We're going to go into chapter 25 in a moment, and I'll just tell you, uh, I'm 52, been saved uh, for 43 years, kind of been paying attention to preaching for 43 years. I've read what we're going to read uh, here and, and look at. I've read it multiple times. I just can't remember. Maybe I have. I can't remember ever it being specifically preached on. And I kind of had some ideas in my head heading into the text, what I thought was going to happen. And not all of that ended up happening, which is fine. We want to reach the right conclusion. And Lord willing, uh, we'll do that. And so you should be in prayer already. Lord, open your eyes and the eyes of all of us uh, looking into his word this morning. So here's the scene. It's a couple of days before the Lord will be put on trial and he'll die on the cross shortly after that. Be raised again three days after that. His disciples have asked him, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now here's our review. He gave them in verses 4 through 14 some general descriptions of things that are going to happen from when he says this in AD 30 until... This event that happens in verse 15. So from there to there, here's the things we should look for. And these are exactly the things that we have seen. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Are there rumors of war going on right now? Absolutely. I mean, there's some stuff, man. It's just really seems to be setting up something big. I hope it doesn't. But the Lord's in control and he's sovereign. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines. There will be pestilence, disease. There, which we've been obviously experiencing the last couple of years in a new, in a new way in our lifetime. There will be earthquakes. There will be persecutions. And these have all happened throughout these 2,000 years. And they will continue to happen however long it takes to get to verse 15. And then there's going to be a great falling away. People who 
that look like they're followers of Jesus, they end up falling back for various reasons. And there's going to be lots of false teachers, and that's exactly what we've seen for the last 2,000 years. But they're like birth pains, meaning they're going to get more intense and closer together as the time arrives. So those are general descriptions that led up to verse 15, which is a very specific thing. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So we studied that. I'm not going into that again. But the Antichrist is going to give this contract, a covenant to many that will include the Jews. And they'll believe it. And it'll be for seven years. But halfway into that seven years, he will go back and he'll show his true colors. And it appears by putting Daniel with Revelation together, he's going to set himself up as God to be worshipped. And that's the cue. From that moment, we know that there's going to be three and a half years of great tribulation that's not like anything before it. So all the bad things that have happened are not as bad as what's coming in those last three and a half years. But then, toward the end of those last three and a half years of great tribulation, specific things are going to happen. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The powers in the heavens, the atmosphere, outer space that Jesus holds in place, those are going to be relaxed and those are going to be shaken and things are going to start falling through our atmosphere to our earth. And since we're mostly covered in water, there's going to be these waves that are going out and terrifying people. And no doubt many of the things will be hitting the land and people will be dying. And then the sign of the Son of Man, Jesus, the sign of Jesus will appear in the sky. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn at what they see. And then the Lord says, he will come. And right at that moment, he sends out his angels to gather the elect. So here, that takes us up to last week. Last week, what we found out, Jesus says this is absolutely going to happen. Heaven will pass away. Earth will pass away. My words, he says, will not pass away. It's going to happen. But no one will know the, t- the day or the hour. No one on earth will know the exact timing. And then what he says, because of that, people will be living then like they lived back before the time of Noah's flood. All the way up until the flood, how did people live? They lived the normal, usual life. Eating, drinking, getting married, worrying about those things. All the normal things. The Lord says that's exactly what people will be doing right before he comes. Why? Because nobody knows the exact timing of when he comes. So people are just going to relax and live normal, usual lives. Last week's main lesson was this. Let the fact that we don't know the timing of the Lord's coming not lead you to just live average, normal, usual lives. Let that say it could be at any moment. Therefore, we want to live unusual, abnormal lives, ready for the Lord. So then he, that's, so here's the last part of the review. The Lord finished by giving us an example. So here's what he's saying. This is what life's going to be like before I come. And here's the reason people are not going to be ready because they don't know the time. You live unusual lives. Don't live like them. And then he says, here's what ready looks like, starting in verse 45 to 51. And then here's what ready does not look like. So this is the unready person. Here's the ready person. And so that was born out in verses 45 to 51. Those two thoughts. Here's ready and here's not ready. And now I believe that same thought carries over into the first 13 verses of chapter 25. I think this is really a continuation of those last verses. This is what ready looks like and what not being ready looks like. And it comes up to what in my Bible has a heading, uninspired heading, says the parable of the ten virgins, and that's how I have titled this. And so if you would, notice verse 1, and let's read through verse 13. Here we go. 
Then the kingdom of heaven. So again, the whole context is the end of time. What's life going to be like on earth with God's people? What's going to be life like at the end of time when he comes? He says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So there's a wedding getting ready to happen. By the way, I want to invite you because I know some of you have read this and maybe you have heard preaching or you've heard little snippets of things. I want to encourage you. Those of you who are like, man, I don't know, that I don't recall hearing this. It's kind of weird. What's this about? Whether you know a little of this text or a lot, here's, here's my encouragement. Don't read this at least the first time. Don't let your mind start applying all the theological ramifications and trying to like, oh, I know what that's going to be, and that, and that stands for that, and that stands for that, and this represents. Don't do that. Let's just let it be a story that Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this story, and we're going to have a story of a wedding that's getting ready to take place, and there's ten girls that go out because the groom's going to be coming on a procession. The bride is not mentioned here. I understand that. Boy, I'm not even going into why is the bride not mentioned, but it's assume that the bride is with him or he's getting ready to pick up the bride and don't even don't even all you theologians out there don't start going in the ramifications all that just yet so here's what we're going to do it's just a story in Judea in Galilee there's a wedding and everybody in town there's a little village and man there, there's him and her and they're getting married and here comes these little girls and they've never been married probably friends of the bride and 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 they've never had had sexual relations with anyone unmarried and here they're coming out and they're going to attend this well verse one again so let's just let the story develop without applying all of our what we think are the ramifications of it theologically then the kingdom of heaven jesus says will be likened ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom bridegroom's going to be coming right by here they know this so they go meet him with their lamps here's the problem Five of them were foolish. And by foolish here, some have even translated this stronger than what you just read it in your mind. Five of them were stupid. That's the idea. Five of them were senseless, foolish, stupid young virgins. And five were wise. They're wise, prudent, sensible. Five are foolish and stupid. Five are wise and sensible. What makes the difference? Is this a matter of IQ and intelligence? No, it has nothing to do with that. It's verse 3. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. Uh, you theologians, check yourselves. Stay with the story. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. They have their lamps and flasks. The others have lamps, no oil. Why is, why is that a problem? Because of verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, the bridegroom is delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. How many became drowsy? Y'all help me out. How many? They all. How many slept? They all became drowsy. They all slept. So you picture them. There's a road. Galilee or Judea. There's a road. Little hillside. There's ten girls. They have their, their lamps. Five of them have oil with them. Five don't. They've fallen asleep in the grass over their graveside, uh, roadside. Not graveside. Roadside. Now, here's the thing. Verse 6. The big event happens. I'm going to refer to like the big event or life's deciding moments. And as I say that, I have several things in mind. You'll see in a note in a little while. But, so there they're asleep. 
But at midnight, there was a cry. I remember as a boy in my teenage years, the Gold City Quartet had a song called At the Midnight Cry. Verse 6, at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Who is this? This is the person that would go before the procession, letting everyone know he's coming, saying, get ready. Get your torches ready. Ready for the procession. Fall in is the idea. Verse 7. So he's calling. He's here. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. So it's now time to light the lamps and fall in. There's a big problem. The foolish said to the wise... The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. That word, that phrase, are going out, can be taken a couple of ways. We'll point that out in a bit. Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, and in the next word, since, some translations have even worded it this way. The wise answered, saying, no, no way, is the idea. So here we go, verse 9. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. So there are you theologians that did not pay attention to what I said. You've jumped ahead, and now you're going, oh, wait a minute. I've got a problem here. They went out to buy the oil. Got to go buy your oil. Yeah, a little kink in in the theology, so we want to stay with the story. Verse 10. So they say, Give us some of your oil. No, if we give you that, then we're not going to have enough. You need to go buy your own. Verse 10, and while they were going, so they're going to buy, the bridegroom came. While they're gone, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also. Where are they at? They're not where they were. This story picks up verse 11. They may have gone back to where they were originally, but ultimately they're now down at the banquet hall, but they're on the outside, verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. That means, no, I will not open the door. You're not coming in. Now, verse 13 is what Jesus says about those 12 verses, which takes us back to verse 36 of chapter 24. He's repeating the same idea, verses 42 to 44 from the previous passage. Verse 13, here's what the Lord says. Watch, therefore. Why? For. Here's the idea. Because you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch. I just gave you the story, what it's going to be like. So, therefore, learn the lesson of this and watch and be ready When the time comes, because you do not know the day or the hour. I want to begin with, uh, in fact, before we put the whole note up, I want you to give you a couple of thoughts to write down. I'm going to propose to you, as you tell by the title, and most, I think, anyone who's doing this would agree. Guys, this is a parable. It is not an allegory. This is a parable. It is not an allegory. And you say, Jeff, I haven't been in school in 40 years. Remind me of the difference. Okay, an allegory has all these details, and every detail means something. Every detail is significant. This stands for that, and that stands for that. Everything is super important. With a parable, a parable generally is going to make a very few points or one main point. So to me, the most, to me, again, it's kind of off the cuff, 
the most complex parable is probably that of the sower that had multiple main points in it. But this one, guys, here's my conclusion. You study it for yourself, and you can send me an email if you kind of disagree. I believe this has one main point. You're going to recognize the main point because it's going to be in all three sub-points. All of our thoughts, we're going to have three ideas in a moment, and they're all going to just kind of be different ways of looking at the one main point. This is a parable, not an allegory, so we're not going to overread into every little detail. But I do want to give you a couple of things. Write this down. In fact, I might even encourage you to write a couple of additional words because I didn't have room on the handout. What we can be 100% confident of is this groom who's coming represents who? This absolutely 100% Jesus is in context of answering what's it going to be like at your coming. He says there's this groom that was coming. The bridegroom was coming and there's this group of people that went out to meet him as he's coming. So the groom here very clearly, I didn't have room in your handout. If you want to add the word clearly represents Jesus' second coming. So we know that. Now what I'm going to propose to you. Seems to me, and I know there's probably some in the room that may have studied this before and might disagree a little bit, but I'm going to propose to you that the ten virgins represent the visible church at the time when Jesus returns. I think that's what he's saying. You want to know the sign of my coming? Here's what it's going to be like on earth at the time of my coming. There's going to be these five this and five of this, and there's a difference between them. We're talking about the visible, you say, Jeff, visible church, I don't know what you mean. Church, the church. No, watch. The invisible church represents all the truly saved people that you can't tell by looking physically at them, but they are the truly saved people from the time of Christ who put their faith and trust in Christ until the time when Christ returns. That's the church. All the people who put their faith and trust in Jesus all around the world, no matter what they look like, no matter what language that they, they are. So these are all the people who are truly, truly saved. You say, then what's the visible church? The visible church, I can give you a representation of it, a very small, tiny representation if you're in the house. Look around. Look around. Do it right now. Just kind of take a real quick look around. This is the visible. This is a small part. There's hundreds of thousands of other congregations meeting around the world. And, and this is the visible church. These are the people that would say they are followers of Christ. I think the ten virgins here represent the visible church. What does that mean? J.C. Ryle words it this way. Quote, of the visible church, all its members are baptized in the name of Christ. Absolutely. I tell you, any legitimate local church must require their, their, their members to be baptized. We'll talk about that as a, as a requirement in our new membership class. All of our members here have been baptized in water as a testimony that they have put their faith and trust in Christ, and they followed that step of obedience. If anybody says, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm just not going to get baptized. Oh, well, you're not going to be a member of Graceview. So the visible church, Ryle writes, all its members are baptized in the name of Christ, but not all really hear his voice and follow him. All are called Christians and profess to be of the Christian religion, but not all have the grace of the Spirit in their hearts. And so, guys, what this is, is as we look around here today, I don't know the percentages. As you go around the world, that, that all the churches that are meeting today, we don't know the percentage of each one. It's going to vary congregation to congregation. But this parable falls right in line with the tares and the wheat. 
So there's this wheat, and this man has this wheat that's the true, and then the enemy sows these tares which look like wheat but have no grain. They're fakes and phonies. They'll be separated at the end. There was this dragnet, Jesus says, and in the dragnet there's fish of all kind, and at the end of the age those fish will be divided into the good and the bad fish. And there's these soils, and the Word of God, the gospel, the seed, is put out on all these different kinds of soils, and the soil represents people. And so there's some of the seed falls on the wayside, the hard beaten down path, some falls on the stony ground, some falls among the thorns and thistles, and some falls on the good ground. The first three represent those who are not really saved, and they'll be separated because the good ground, some of them produce 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, but that's the good, and all these were the ones that were in the church, but they're not really of the invisible church. That's what I think we're dealing with. So guys, we're looking at a parable about 10 little girls who are going out, trying to go to a wedding. Five of them make it, five of them don't. What this says to us is nowhere near this story. Man, it's kind of a sad, sad story for these little girls. But the story itself is nowhere near as heavy and as substantial and eternal as what it stands for. So what it, this is teaching, we got to learn some things from this little local, cultural, Jewish wedding story. We have to apply it. What is life going to be like in the visible church at the time when Christ comes? You say, man, Jeff, we're usually well into the first point by now. All right. The last thing of introduction I feel like I need to give you is this. Remember, this is a parable. It's not an allegory. There are some things that are just not clear. And for those of you that may be expecting me to say some things, I feel like I need to, to point this out. So here's some things that are not clear, if you want to write them down. Number one, it is not clear, are these girls bridesmaids or not? Don't know if they're bridesmaids. Maybe they are. Maybe they're just young friends. So it doesn't necessarily say that they're bridesmaids. I know some people may want to delve into this and build their whole eschatological end-time theology based off of, of a parable like this. I think it's making one main point about what life is going to be like among those who profess to be following Christ at the end of the age. Second thing we're not sure about, these lamps. Is, are these little clay lamps that have oil in them with a wick that's floating and when you light the wick, and this is very slow burning, and when the oil finally burns out, then the little lamp goes out. Or most people would say it is not that kind. That There's two things going on in that time period. There were these little lamps, little personal individual lamps, but there was also these torches. Most would say, and this makes more sense, is this, this how to use the word? This, these are torches. So this is something that have a pole, and it would have these cloths, these rags wrapped around the pole, and it is dipped and saturated in oil. When you set it on fire, it will, it will burn and give off a lot of light for probably 15 to 25 minutes. And that's what these girls have. So it seems like it's torches and not our idea of a little lamp, but that's not 100%. Here's a big one, number three. It is unclear, is this oil symbolic? Is the oil symbolic? And I know some would think when they read it, and I kind of thought that's what I was going to run into. Oh, the oil certainly stands for blank. And right now some of you are filling in the blank. Jeff, the oil stands for the Holy Spirit because oil in the Bible is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. It is a symbol for the Holy Spirit sometimes, but it doesn't have to be a symbol for the Holy Spirit all the time. And so all I'm going to say is the text doesn't say if the oil is symbolic. 
Is it symbolic of these five have the Holy Spirit, these five don't? These five goes, go in, those five don't. Is it symbolic of faith? These five have real saving faith, these five don't have real saving faith. I'm just going to say it doesn't say. The text doesn't say what the oil is symbolic of. Perhaps it is. I'd offer those two as what it is symbolic of if it is symbolic. One more thing. Not on your handout. One last thing, the text is unclear about where is this groom on his procession. Where is he at? Is he on his way to the bride's house to pick up the bride and then going down to his house? Or has he already been to the bride's house and then he's on his way to his house with the bride? Some translations even add, and the bride, to verse 1 because some manuscripts have that. They went out to meet the bridegroom and the bride. But anyway, right here was what we have. So we don't know, is he on his way here, or has he already been here and he headed down there? You say, okay, what's the point? Some, and this is what's so difficult, people read this and they study that, and you get these conflicting things about what was the culture like in that day. Some say here was the normal culture. The groom would go to the bride's house. There would be the wedding ceremony at the bride's house. And then both of them would go down to the groom's house for the wedding feast. And then they would stay there and live together. Others would say the groom goes and picks up the bride, takes the bride at her house, takes the bride down to his house, and both the wedding and the wedding feast take place at the groom's house. Possibly. I lean toward this third option. Remember, there's this thing called betrothal in the Jewish culture. And so what I lean toward that was put forth by, I think MacArthur was the main one, is there would be this betrothal ceremony between this man and this woman, and this ceremony is binding. They are legally married at that ceremony in the betrothal. They're married. They're just not living together physically yet. So what's going to happen? There's going to be a year gap before they actually end up having the feast. Why? What goes on in this year? So this, they're legally bound. They're actually married at the betrothal. And then there's this year where two things happen. The husband gets his house ready, and the wife, this bride, is going to be presented as pure. And so we're going to allow a year, and he's not going to have any sexual relationship with this one he's betrothed to. He's waiting until the time of the year later. But if she ends up pregnant, then he will know she's not pure, she's unfaithful, and then they would have to get a divorce. So there's already been a ceremony. They're in the one-year waiting period. And then they'll go down to the feast after that, after the year, and they will live together at his house after having this big feast with everyone. And then they physically consummate the marriage. So now they've not been together physically for the year, though they're already married to each other, been apart physically, but now they come together physically and everyone celebrates that. And you can kind of see how that does kind of line up with a lot of the New Testament theology we've been taught. So those are four things that are unclear. Now here's what I want to say. I'm not going to press those things. I'm not going to say this has to stand for that and that has to stand for that because I don't think any of those affect the main, main point, which is what I told you a while ago. You're going to see the main point of this text come up over and over in our three points. Number one, readiness. That's the main point. Readiness. Readiness requires preparation. Readiness requires preparation. We know five are ready and five are not ready. Why are five ready? Because they prepared the other five did not prepare. The Lord's coming back. Five are ready, five are not. 
You must make preparation in time. Could I even add the word? I wish I would have. Readiness requires advanced. That's the key thought. Readiness requires advanced preparation. Are you ready? Grace View, those of you who are listening right now, that we've been studying Matthew 24 and about the end times and Christ coming back. Are you ready right now? You say, oh, yes, I'm ready. I'm ready. Do you know that you know that you're ready? What makes you think you are ready? That's the key. Now write this thought. So I'm going to spell out the main point of the parable. The main point of this parable is that the gravity, finality, and uncertain timing of Jesus' return, I'm going to add another big event. Remember, I keep saying, when the big event happens, in this case, it was a groom coming. The whole context is when Jesus comes back. So guys, I'm going to add to that death, physical death. So here's the thought. The gravity and the finality and the uncertainty of the timing of Christ's return or our own death, the gravity of our death, the uncertain timing of our death, the finality of our death, all of those demand, here's the point of this text, we must get ourselves prepared for that, for the big event, whatever it may. It could be the rapture. Am I, am I ready right now? Are you ready for the rapture? Are you ready for the second coming of the Lord? Are you ready for your death? If one of those things were to occur today, are you ready right now? The point is you must be prepared now be prepared. As I was reading this, I was reminded of the difference between me and my brother. I think it was nine or ten years ago. My son's now 23, so I remember years ago, I just didn't get to do a lot of hunting. I was on a school schedule. I grew up hunting with my family. We did bear hunting down in eastern North Carolina, and we used dogs. And I remember I want Jonathan to kind of get a taste of that. And plus, I want to spend some time with my dad and my brother. And so, before he turned 16, because we're out of staters, and so once you turn 16, it was going to cost him 300 bucks to go hunting. And I didn't want to do that. But I'm thinking, I want to take him on this hunting trip. So I, I remember I took him on two. But there was one particular day. It was two-something in the afternoon. I wasn't officially hunting. I was just driving my truck around catching dogs. I didn't even take a gun. Took one for Jonathan because he could hunt free, right? I'm a cheapskate. We didn't have any bear running that day. Whatever it was, I think it was November. You know how it gets dark early in November? So we had no success that morning, I don't think. And all our dogs were caught up, and I'm thinking we're going to go back to where we were staying. But then I was at another road, and I got a phone call, and... My dad said, hey, can you come over and go in with your, with your brother? Can you go in with Russell? Uh, there's a man here. He's not even part of our group, but he was also a bear hunter, and he has a dog in there that was running a bear, and he ran him so long, uh, and, and it was like three days ago that he's not been tracking his dog. So he has a tracker, and his dog is not moving anymore. And he doesn't know if he's alive or dead, and he's just wanting somebody, can they go in and try to find this dog? And so my brother uh, was willing to do that. And the woods there, all I can tell you is it's just crazy, crazy thick. This is swamplands. 
the, the tallest trees would be about the height of that ceiling right there. And you're going to think I'm, I'm joking. Uh, there were sections that it would be just a little taller than my head. You would go faster by crawling on top of them or by crawling down under at the base of them than by trying to push through. It's swampy. It's wet. It's November. And so here goes my brother. And my dad wants to know, can you come and go with Russell? I said, oh, yeah, I'll be over there in a minute. And so I come over there, and I see Russell getting ready, and I, I, I borrow a good hunting coat, Carhartt-type material, and I'm thinking, okay, it's 3 o'clock by now. We're getting ready to go in. It's probably going to be dark around 545. They've tracked it. It's a little less than a mile and a half in where this dog is. And so I'm throwing in a couple of waters, a couple of things of peanuts. My brother's throwing in waters and peanuts and a couple of other things. He's packing a pistol. He's putting in flashlights and extra batteries and a tracker for the dog that will also track back to the vehicle. He's getting ready a whole different level than I'm getting ready. Why? He knows what's coming. I was clueless. I'm not going to go into why. I'll give you two hints. A pulled muscle right here that revealed itself about 400 yards into the trip and my blood sugar just dumped on me uh, probably about a quarter of a mile before we got to the dog. That was probably one of the two worst days of my life. We got back after midnight, and I didn't think I was going to make it. I was literally at a point where I'm just good. Let's just sleep right here. And we kept pushing. Thankfully, somebody made it to me with a Hardy's cobbler and a Mountain Dew um, about 1230, and we were about still a quarter of a mile to go. And, man... That got in my system. I still had to pull muscle, but, and I felt, oh, I'm ready to go again. But I, I, was, I was just done. And you said, well, did you get the dog? Uh, that dog, we hollered for that dog when we got a, a half mile away. We yelled for it when we got four-tenths of a mile away. Three, blue, blue, hell, hell, blue. We just keep hollering. His name was Blue. We yelled when we got a quarter mile away. We yelled when we got 400 yards away. We yelled when we got 200 yards away, 100 yards away, 50 yards away. Long story short, we got about 30 feet away. He, he's got to be right through there. You know what we hear? <laughs> he's been laying there and he gets up and finally he comes through, through there and we got to put him on a leash and now we got to lead him through all this ridiculously thick stuff Could I, uh, can we have that pistol I think I got to go you stupid yeah we found your dog yeah he was dead yeah lead poison uh, here's my point of that whole story the way Russell was preparing is a whole different way than I was preparing because he knew what was coming. The Lord is telling people, get ready for the big event. More than you think, you need to be ready. Look at verse 2. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Guys, I don't know why. You five girls, why didn't you take oil? Uh, why didn't you take oil for your torch? Did they forget? I don't know. Maybe they just forgot. Or did they presume? Ah, he'll come back before it actually gets dark. Or if he comes after dark, we'll just borrow some oil. Or we'll just go buy some. We don't know. But it's going to cost them because of verse 5. Look at verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed. Guys, this I think is the key, one of the key points that, bring, that leads us to the whole readiness. There's a delay. There are three main parables in chapter 24 at the end. We looked at last week. And there's going to be this one this week and one next week, Lord willing. 
All three parables, will you look at them? Because Jesus gives a hint to the people that we now know was 2,000 years ago, A.D. 30. They have no idea that he's laying a hint, I'm going to be a while on your calendar. You're, you're going to be surprised how long it takes me. Look back at chapter 24 in your Bible. Look at verse 48. If the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, Jesus gave a hint. Chapter 25, verse 5, as the bridegroom was delayed, Jesus is giving a hint. Look at chapter 25, verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. When? After a long time. They weren't ready for a long time. The five were not ready for the long time. R.T. France gives us a quote, and I want you to now we'll have the note on the screen. You're going to think he's making one point in this quote, but I want you to notice he's actually correctly pointing out four things that this text is teaching us about readiness. France writes, The parable thus illustrates both the fact that the time of the parousia, parousia is that word we talked about four weeks ago, which means the arrival, the coming of Christ. So here's the point. This parable illustrates the fact that the time of the parousia is unknown. We don't know when he's coming. And number two, that it may not be as soon as people might expect. Number three, also it's sudden. And number four, it's sudden unexpected nature when it does come. So there's actually four things that, that France points out, right? Number one, the timing will be unknown. Number two, it's going to actually be longer than you think. Those people in AD 30 would have been shocked to think that he hasn't come back in 2022. You've got to be kidding. No way. Just like many of us would say, there's no way if the Lord were to wait another thousand years. You think there is no way. It has to happen in our life. Maybe. Maybe not. He's hinting. Number two. It will not be as soon as people expect. It's going to be sudden when it does come, and it's going to be unexpected when it happens. And that delay is going to cause people to be living then like they lived back at the time of Noah. People will not be ready. Here's the warning. The visible church will not be ready. I'm going to give you a second story. This one has to do with this guy over here. It was probably 10 or 11 years ago. Mike Sturgill was the school administrator of the, uh, at the church. I was on pastoral staff, and he was a school administrator, and I was one of the Bible teachers in, in the school. And I, would, I coached basketball a couple of years, two or three years while he was there. And he coached volleyball. And I meant to ask him. I didn't get time this morning. I can't remember. This is, again, 10, 12 years ago. I don't know if he, I, I don't know if he was coaching the varsity or the JV, Though some of you will be able to relate. Here's, I remember vividly, as he was coaching volleyball, the court goes this way, but something was happening on the main court. So there's the main net that we couldn't use that. They couldn't use that to practice. Had to stay off. I don't know what on the floor was done or what. But what they did is they set up these tires that had this little temporary net going this way. And so over here is the main entrance. Over here is the guest, where the guest bleachers are. Over there is the scorer's table. So instead of going this way, they're going this way. And he, on this day, had both teams, the JV girls and the varsity girls. I can't remember which team he was the head coach of, but he combined the two. And I remember he was over by the visitor's bleachers, and he was serving. And there weren't not six girls on the other side of the net. It was combined, and he was trying to train them and practice. We only have this space today. 
And so he had like either nine or I think he had like nine, like three rows of three. Normally you'd only have six, right? So he's got nine. And here's the point. I remember watching this because I'm not even good at volleyball. And I don't know why I was in the gym that day. I was getting ready to leave. And I just remember him saying, all right, hey, you. And he called a specific girl. And it was the one on the very back, very back row to that corner. Hey, and he said her name. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? I'm, I'm serving it to you. Because he had spotted a weakness that I had seen many times as they play. And so here's what, you, you're, boom. And he hit this top spin serve that zipped across the net and landed right at that girl's feet. I thought you said you were ready. I'm ready now. Served again. Boom. Ball hit in front of her feet. I could see his frustration. He's the nicest guy you ever want to meet. But this is the real world. So-and-so, I'm hitting it to you. You ready? Are you, re- you short? You- Boom. Hit the ground right in front of her. You, are you ready? Boom. Yeah, I'm ready. Boom. Hit the ground in front of her. He did this like seven, eight, nine times. Two things amaze me. One, everywhere he says he's going to hit it, he hits it exactly there. When I play volleyball, I just hope to get it over the net. He's like hitting like a spot. And he's always hitting it right in front of their feet. Second thing that amazed me, and I felt like just going, move up. Move forward. Make up the space. He's trying to tell you, you're not ready. And it shows up in the games. You think you're ready. I'm really ready. And not a one of them hit it. Not a one. It made, move forward. Go into the back of that girl so the only thing you can do is hit it over your head. That's what I'm thinking. You're going to hit it over my head before you hit it in front of my feet again. They never adjusted. Now that's a little story. That's a real event. It's about sports. We preach this stuff every week. And we talk about how to be saved. The Bible is true. The time is going to come when Jesus returns be it a rapture, or the second coming, or death is going to come. The big event is going to come in all of our lives in one way or another. And what Jesus is teaching is that many people think they're ready, but they're not ready. As a pastor, I almost wish we could just go around and let's just pause and one by one, starting with me and Sonia and Victor and Victor David, and Alina, and we're just literally going to go all around. Are you ready? Are you ready? Oh, yeah, 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 I'm ready. No, no, everyone thinks they're ready. But what Jesus is saying is many people are really not ready. Are you ready is the point. Guys, I hope it is never one of us, but the chances are, I think about most days in South Carolina, a car wreck happens and takes someone out. If a car wreck were to take one of us out today, are you ready if that were you? That's the point. You say, Jeff, are you seriously bringing us in here today to use this text to preach to us about salvation? That is the point of this text. Are you ready? Look at, if you would, verse 5. I've got to go in a moment to the second point, but I want to touch verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. They all became drowsy and slept. All ten. Is that an indictment on the church, the visible church, that when Jesus comes, even asking another place, will I find faith when I come? 
Is this an indictment on the whole church? I don't know. I don't, I don't sense there's a rebuke in this. Do y'all sense this? Jesus is like pounding even the wise ones in what he writes. I don't know that he is. Look again, one more time, verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Then at midnight, there was this cry. Here's the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. I want to borrow two quotes. This will be the first one. I'll give another one in a moment that MacArthur writes. And I wouldn't waste your time with this if I didn't think it was onto something. He writes, quote, There is no indication in this text that sleep represents laziness or faithlessness. They're just, they're sleepy. And I know what verse 13 is saying. Watch therefore. But we know that verse 13 is not talking about physical sleep. It's talking about being spiritually ready. So watch. He says there's no indication in this text that sleep represents laziness or faithlessness. Even the prudent bridesmaids fell asleep. Illustrating still again that no one, not even the faithful saints, will know exactly when Christ will appear. Now here's the main thing. I'm giving you these last two little lines. These last three lines. Here's what stood out to me. I'm going to offer it. I'm not saying this is 100% what's happening here. I'm going to offer this as what could be happening. He writes, quote, The sleep of the foolish bridesmaids might suggest their false confidence. Whereas the sleep of the prudent ones could suggest their genuine security and rest in the Lord. Let me read it again. The sleep of the foolish. But really, guys, I've just put them here and here. But on this little hillside where they're sleeping the grass, you see them, it's dark. I don't know how long into the dark they fell asleep. I don't know how many hours they slept. Did they stay awake till 1130 and dozed off them for 30 minutes? And then someone says the bridegroom. And they're only, I don't know. We don't know how long they're sleeping. But picture the ten. And I don't think it's like the ten that had oil are here and the ten that don't have oil are here. They're just all mingled in among each other like we all are this morning. Notice. He writes, the sleep of the foolish bridesmaids might suggest their false confidence. Let's go back in time. Let's go to that little roadside. You ready? Here we go. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah. You know the bridegroom's coming. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's coming. And I'm ready. Do you have oil for your torch? No, I don't have oil. Why are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping? You're not ready. Oh. You see it? This is your moment. You know he's coming. He's not quite here yet. Why are you sleeping? Get up and go get some oil. Now. Now. Go. Are you ready? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm ready. Do you have oil? I do, I do, I'm ready. As soon as I hear this here, I'm dousing this, I'm flaming up, I'm going to actually be there before he gets, I'm going to go and I'm, I'm ready. I was just dozing off for a minute. Okay. Enjoy your rest. I think, I am quite sure, guys, from some conversations I've had, that I think many people in this room are really ready to physically tonight, physically lay your head down and rest, knowing that if the Lord were to come back tonight or if you were to die in your sleep, it's okay, I'm ready. 
But there may be some others that you literally should not go to sleep physically until you know you are ready spiritually for eternity. You don't need to go to sleep today at all until you settle. Girls, why are you sleeping? Now's the time. You got a little window. It's not quite too late. You should have already fixed this, but you haven't. Number two. So readiness requires us to have advanced preparation. Number two, readiness, this is a key thought. Verses seven to nine show readiness does not rely on others. Readiness, oh, I'm ready. If you're really ready, you will not have to rely on others. Look at verse seven. Actually, back up to six. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. So here's one more thing that I'm going to offer that I don't know that is clear in the text. When these ten girls all go out together to get over at the procession passing, are all ten lamps burning? And they go and they just fizzle out. Is that the picture? All ten lamps are burning? And then they just kind of go out. And we know that ten have more to put on. Is it that those five didn't bring extra oil? Or is it that they brought no oil? We say, well, Jeff, it seems like they were all burning and then they fizzled out. Because of verse 8 says, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. They're going out. But watch. Carson pointed out, grammatically, it is very possible that... What's happening here is they're trimming their lamps. They're getting the old charred sections off of a former use another time. And that the lamp here had not been burning. They're trying to light dried cloths, dried rags, which smolder and smoke and give a few little flickers of light. And are trying to catch, but they just won't stay lit. It keeps going out. Can we have some of your oil? And so they ask for oil. So it's possible they were never even lit. Now that they need him, oh, he's coming. Here he comes. It's now time to light the lamps, the torches. The other quote from MacArthur, he offers kind of what I've already said. He says, perhaps they thought, the foolish, perhaps they thought they could quickly run down to the oil shop anytime they wanted and secure what they needed in plenty of time. Or perhaps they thought they could borrow oil if the shop were closed, the recourse they now tried to take. Here's the key. No reason is given for their negligence, no doubt, because the reason is irrelevant. Why don't they have, why didn't you girls bring oil? Forget? Or did you just presume? You know what? It doesn't matter why you didn't bring oil. The point is you have not brought oil and now you're in an emergency because here's a major lesson I'm getting ready to share. This is the key. It's what you just wrote in the second point. Everybody has to have their own oil. What's this? That's the point here. Everybody has to have their own oil. And now what does that stand for in light of the kingdom of God? Everybody has to have their own oil. So we've been talking about you've got to be ready. When Christ is really coming, are you ready? To be ready requires forethought, prior forethought and preparation. To be ready means that you don't borrow and rely on someone else. You're ready. Write this quick thought. And actually, I want to develop it after we write it. The primary preparation Jesus speaks of is salvation. That, I think, is the main thing that's being talked about here. 
the primary preparation, be ready, be prepared, is salvation. But the key is, if you make this an allegory, then you've got people down trying to buy their salvation. So one thing we know, no one can buy. There's no one who sells salvation to mankind. It is a free gift, so continue writing. The primary preparation Jesus speaks of is salvation. Scripture is clear that salvation is by faith. Everybody here, I told you a while ago, we cover this every week in some form, usually almost every week. And yet somebody's still going to miss it. Salvation. Scripture is clear. Salvation is by faith. By faith. You don't do anything. It is by faith in Christ alone. And it is also clear. The Bible is also clear. So it's by faith. Okay, got it, Jeff. All we can do is believe. So here's another major point of Scripture. No one can believe for anyone else. No one can believe. Listen, I've already believed for you. You're good. You're covered. No one can believe. The only way to heaven is by faith and believing, and no one can believe and have faith for anyone else. Why is that important? Because probably in this room, if we could really get down into the subconscious of some people or someone listening online, there really are people who think they're going to go to heaven because of an association with others. But the problem is God, as we've said before, has no grandchildren. God has no stepchildren. You say, well, my brother and my sister, they're a really good Christian. That is not going to help you get saved. Oh, my mom and my dad, they're really good Christians. You're not a grandchild of God. God has no grandchildren. Your parents' faith cannot help you. They cannot believe for you. No one can believe for anyone else. Associations. I'm associated with that group. I'm sure there are people who think, man, my spouse is, is, a, is a true Christian. I'm not, but they are. And if there ends up being something to it, then I'm sure I'll get in off of them. Their coattails. No, you will not. Man, that guy down at work says he prays for him, and he seems to get his prayers answered. Man, he seems like the real deal. And if he's praying for me, I'm probably okay. No, you're not. God doesn't have a company policy. Associations. Maybe someone thinks... I'll go to heaven because I'm a member of Graceview. We're going to have a new members class. And I think there is an importance to being a member of a local church, particularly accountability. We help keep each other accountable. We're inviting that. You do that for me, and I do that for you. But being a member of Graceview, I'll promise you this. When you stand before the Lord, no one, you, you, you will not bring it up because it will not work. And I'll promise you this. No, no person is going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and be able to look at their family member like, do something. Help me out. Do something. I'm getting ready to be plunged into hell. Please help. They can't. It's too late. They can't help you. They can't believe for you. They can't have faith. You don't need to turn there. I am going to turn it. It's not on the screen. You see that reference in your next note? You see that reference? Romans 9. I want you to listen to this. Remember the thought? You're not really ready if you're relying on someone else. Readiness does not rely on anyone else. It doesn't rely on others. Romans 9, verses 1 through 3, this is the Apostle Paul, and he qualifies in verse 1 four qualifications he puts on what he's about to say. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, five. I'm speaking the truth. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's brought Christ in as a witness of his truthfulness. He's brought the Holy Spirit in. What's the big deal he's about to say? Verse 2. That I have great 
Paul is saying, I have great sorrow and, con- and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, which it goes on and describes as the Israelites. What Paul is saying is, if I could, I would not just share my salvation with someone else. I would give up my salvation. I would go to hell so that my kinsmen, the Jews, would all go to, he- go to heaven. I would go to hell so they could go to heaven. What is this teaching us? Write this thought. Romans 9, 1 through 3, proves to us not only can no one not believe for anyone, but no one can share their salvation with anyone else. You can't share. Can we just get some of your oil? No, you can't. There's not enough for me and for you. So you got a flashlight, and they've got a flashlight, and they were smart enough to throw in, like my brother, batteries to go in the flashlight, and you have a flashlight with no batteries. They, at the moment of darkness, they throw in two batteries in the flashlight and turn on, they have light. Hey, I didn't bring batteries. Can I have one of yours? No, it doesn't work that way. I have to have all of this for me. Now finish your note. Not only does Romans 1 through 3 prove that no one can share their salvation, the point of this whole second thought is this. Everyone must have their own moment of conversion and their own relationship with God. Everyone must have their own moment of conversion, their own relationship with God. You have to have yours. Hey, guys, by God's grace, I have a moment of conversion. I was nine years old. I have a relationship with God. I know him. I have a relationship with him. He has a relationship with me. My moment of conversion will not help anybody in here. My relationship with God cannot spill over for you to have my relationship with God, nor yours for me, nor yours for anyone. We all have to have our own moment of conversion, our own relationship with God. So here's where I pause. Do you have both of those? Let's just be clear. It's everybody in here. Everybody in here. Because the text is true. Some in this room... We have every reason to believe in the Scripture. Some in this room are going to end up not in heaven. Though we preach it all the time, preach it every week, and though you nod and agree like the girls are ready for the, ready for the serve, really not ready, and we're going to find out in eternity. Is that going to be you? That's what I'm asking you. Is it going to be you? Don't let it be you. It's probably going to be someone in here. It's probably going to be someone listening. Don't let it be you. Do you have your own moment of conversion? You say, Jeff... I got saved at this place, and I got saved at this time. Great. Those of you that struggle, like, I just know that this and that and the other. I'm going to ask the more important question than when did this happen. Here it comes. How do you know that you're ready? I want you to answer. I'm going to actually stop and give you 10 seconds in a moment. Let me frame it. Most everyone in here right now is probably saying, I'm ready. I know I'm on on my way to heaven. I know. I'm prepared. I'm not relying on others. I have my own relationship with God. I have my own moment of conversion. Here's my question. What happened at your moment of conversion? What happened? I want you to be as specific as you could be as if I was going to point to you to stand and say, this is what happened at my moment of conversion. I'm going to give you 10 seconds or roughly that. And in that time, I'm going to be quiet, and I want you, don't say it out loud. I want you to really boil down, this is why I know I'm ready. Mark, set, go. Everyone must have their own conversion, their own relationship with God. Why do you know that you have it? 
All of us are going to walk out here in just a few minutes as if we're ready. What makes you think you haven't? If a moment ago, when I asked you to do that, if in your mind, your mind went toward when you were baptized, if your mind went toward that you go to church, if that came in your thinking, if your mind went to you no longer do that thing anymore and you're starting to do this thing and you give some money, you have just revealed what you're trusting. If your mind went there, you've got big problems. You're not ready. There are people sitting in the room. I just described what you thought. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. There is nothing in that that we do. Even if you had this little blended thing where, oh, I know he died on the cross and I'm doing my part and I got baptized when I was this, year, this old and I've stopped doing that and I go to church here and I'm a member there and I do that. You are showing what you're trusting. People in this room are not ready. I'm not trying to like cause something to happen so we could all pat ourselves on the back. This scares me. This is real. Ten little girls not making it to a wedding. Tough luck. Big deal. Learn a lesson. This is forever what it stands for. One last thought on the second point, and we're going to quickly go to the third. This always amazes me. Look at verse 6. At midnight there was a cry. Bridegroom's coming. I find this to be amazing. A big event will happen in someone's life. A car wreck that's almost fatal. The terminal illness diagnosis and a short time to live. A major surgery that the percentages are not in your favor. Here's what I find, because this is what I do. I get the phone call. And the person who this has happened to, or their loved one, wants to know if I'll talk to the loved one who's just had this happen, or the one who's just had it happen to them, will I come talk to them so they can get ready? So here's what blows my mind. Number one, the Lord in His mercy every now and then really does save people in those final moments, in those difficult moments. That does happen. But here's what blows my mind. Like, why have you been living with eternal risk just hovering all around you all the rest of your life? Why did you only want them to hear the gospel when this bad thing happens and it looks like they're not going to make it? Or it looks like you're not going to make it and now suddenly you're open to hearing the gospel. Why did it take that? Because this could happen at any time. It's by God's mercy we don't die today. Why weren't you ready before? I find that strange. I want to wait till the last possible moment, some people. Number three, readiness determines access and rejection. This is why this is so important. This isn't about little girls missing out on a feast in a village. It's much deeper than that. Readiness determines access or rejection with the Lord. Notice verse 10. Remember I said earlier, we don't have to press the whole, what's the significance of the oil? We don't have to press that and make it something that maybe it isn't. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Because the point is still the same. We end up at the same place. And it's verse 10. While they were going, these five foolish, while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. Do you see it? 
And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. So there's the problem. The groom came. The five that didn't have the oil, they're gone when he comes. And that means he came when I wasn't expecting it, and I wasn't ready. I was gone. I should have done it before. But now that you're here, and the emergency's here, and the big event of life, death, rapture, second coming, now that it's here, then I need to go real quick and get ready. No, 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 it's too late. You should have already been ready. While they're, while they're gone, he comes, and these ones who are prepared have gone down. Write this note. Likewise, Jesus is coming. Let's just admit it. It has been delayed. It's been delayed. 2,000 years. But all of his promises are going to come to pass. When he says, I'm coming back, mark it down. Jesus is coming back. And the only ones who will make it into the feast, the kingdom feast, are those who are ready at the moment he arrives. I'm going to wait till the groom actually gets here. And then I'm going to go get some oil for my torch. Okay, you know what they call that? Stupid. Foolish. That is stupid. That is a stupid plan. I'm going to try to time it where I get to live for myself. And then on the deathbed, I think it was Barkley. And I I know nothing about Mary of Orange. I don't know who she was. But Barkley told of Mary of Orange coming to the end of her life and about to die. And her chaplain coming to tell her the ways of eternal life. And she told him. You don't need to do that. I have not waited until this moment for that. I didn't wait till this moment for that. I've already settled that. You don't need to tell me. I already know where I'm going. Write this thought. All preparation must be done before life's deciding moments, be it the rapture, the second coming of the Lord, death. All of it has to be done and completed before the deciding moment arrives because there will be no time to prepare once the deciding moment has come. Y'all do know this, when we die, there is no purgatory. Purgatory, if it were true, surely doesn't sound like any fun burning off your sins until you're ready to go to heaven. But there is no purgatory. That doctrine is not taught anywhere in the Bible. That doctrine is taught in other books that are not in the Bible. There is no second chance. The door was shut. Look at verse 11. Afterward, the other versions came also. Here they come. Saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Do y'all get the picture? What did the text not say? The text does not say they came back with oil. Not, doesn't say either way, but I'm assuming it would have said they found someone open, they bought some oil, they come back. We got our torches, we're, we're ready now. Even if that were the case, it's too late. But it doesn't say that they found someone to buy oil from. Guys, watch. I don't know if they ended up going back to where they were before and like, where, are, where, where is everybody? Oh, he came while you were gone. While you were gone to get ready, when you should have already been ready, he came. They're gone. So here they come down. They make their way down to where the wedding feast is at, down to the banquet hall. They're on the outside asking if they can get inside. But notice the door has already been shut. What does that remind us of? We just read it last week. Are y'all still with me? The door was shut reminds us of who that was in chapter 24 that was mentioned. Noah. Noah had been warning and warning and warning, and then the door was shut. And then the rains came and the floods came up. And now all of a sudden, I'm sure everybody that knew about the ark, now we want in. We didn't want in before, but now we realize how urgent it is. No, the door is shut. Once closed, once the big event happens, guys, it's too late for us. It's too late for you, perhaps. The last thought is this one. 
I left a word off because I thought it was too strong originally. And I probably should have included it. I think I put something like this. A point of Scripture. I, I have it in my notes. A major point of Scripture. But I thought, Jeff, that's too strong. You're thinking of one text. And then there's others. Write this thought. And I'll be like two minutes after that. Here we go. A major point of Scripture is that people must be saved at God's appointed time. You must get saved at God's appointed time, not just when it feels convenient, nor at the end of life. I'm going to time it for the end of life. Right now is not a good time. Jeff, I hear you. Man, this is kind of rocking my world right now. I understand. I need to get ready. Probably should really think about doing this. Just not going to do it today. A major point of Scripture is that people must be saved at God's appointed time, not when you think it's convenient and it feels like a good opportunity. Now it makes sense, and you surely don't try to time it until the end of life. You say, Jeff, why would you say major? I've now thought of just three passages. If you want to write little small in the side margins, write down, and you go home and read this. Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4. All those chapters. Hebrews 3 and 4. Keeps talking about while it is called today. While it is called today. Do this. Get this taken care of while it is called today. Second, so it's Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to verse 1. Right after saying that Christians are ambassadors of Christ, able to do business for Christ, we can make, help make those transactions and lead you to Christ. Paul writes in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, quote, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Then Paul writes, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. James chapter 4. Listen to verse 13 if you want to write that little reference. James 4, 13 to 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. This is the plan. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, just a vapor. Just, oh, there I see it. No, it's gone. I, I, I see it. Bowl in the macaroni. Oh, six cups of boiling water. Pour in the macaroni. I see that. Uh, I thought I saw it. I see the steam, but I can't find it up here. For what is your life? Your life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, Lord, open to us. No. Ten little girls missing a wedding. Man, we hate it for you. But what this points to, guys, is that real, hear me, real people with eternal souls are going to hear Jesus say, verse 12, to them. I hope it's no one listening today. Is it anyone who's listening today that you're going to hear as of right now, unless you prepare and get ready. Is anyone here listening going to hear the Lord say, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. The door is shut. You do not get into heaven. 
Here's what, I promise you this is going to happen, guys, based off of chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. I don't have time. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Many people are going to cry out, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, depart, I never knew you. They will be shocked. Many will be shocked. Why are they shocked? They honestly thought they're ready. Well, how do we know if we're ready or not? If when I asked you how you know you're ready, if your mind went anywhere other than I know I'm, and I hope I'm describing all of you in here, but when I gave you that 10 seconds, I hope your mind went to some version of this. I know I'm ready because Jesus died for my sins and his death was for me and it was enough and I've confessed my sins to the Father and I've received the promise that if I'll trust Christ, he would give me eternal life for free and I have done that, I am doing that. If you went anywhere other than that, you might not be ready. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. Many people think they're ready for eternity, but they're not. So I've got to ask you, are you 100% sure that you're ready for the big event? If the big event is the rapture, if the big event is the second coming of Christ. But if that's many years away, you can count on this. The big event will be the deciding day of your death. And at that moment, it is too late to do anything to prepare. Are you ready? How do you know that you're ready? You who are right now saying, oh, I'm comfortable. I'm ready. I have the peace of the Lord. I'm resting. What are you resting in? Please, no one, rely on some time at the end, at the last minute, where I'm pretty sure I'll be able to get it right just before the end. That is stupid. That is foolish. So now I need to ask this. You who still say, Jeff, I really am ready. Okay, awesome. And you say, Jeff, I have a Bible reason. I'm trusting Jesus, death only. Then I have another question for you. This is important. You who say you're ready, what is the evidence that you have a relationship with God? What's the evidence? You say, well, I read my Bible. Guess what? When we read our Bible, you know what it teaches us? It teaches us that God has a relationship with us, the church. But when you walk away from having read your Bible and seen what God has for us, the church, is there that ongoing thing? After you've got up from your reading and your prayer, is there that ongoing thing that lets you know God has a relationship with me? I know He has a relationship with me, and it is real. I'm afraid some may go into eternity with some good memorized theological answers even about salvation but no evidence Romans chapter 8 says that those who are the children of God are those who are led by the Spirit they have the evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life day to day do you have the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life or have you just learned good theology it's just too risky to play games and I want to ask all of us are you 100% sure that you're ready? Or are you 85% sure?
You're 50% sure. If you're 50% sure, you're not ready. If you're 85% sure, you're not ready. God's people know who they are and they've put their full confidence and trust in Him. They trust Him. When the deciding moment comes, no one can help you. We might be able to help you today while there's still time. If we can, please let us know. Just before I pray, heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm just going to ask this. Anyone at home, I can't see you, obviously. So I'm going to ask those who are here in the house. Is there anyone listening today? Just want to say by raised hand, just slip it up real quick and hold it for three or four seconds. You say, Jeff, I, I think I'm not ready. I am not ready for the Lord's return. I'm not ready for the big event. I'm not ready for death. Is there anyone like that in the room? You say, I'm going to raise my hand. I think I'm not ready. Would you raise your hand just before we pray? Going once. Going twice. Would you stand with me this morning as we dismiss in prayer? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace and your long-suffering. Lord, thank you for that night in 1979 when you met me and dragged me to you. Your Holy Spirit did his work. Thank you for that. Father, I pray you know all the hearts. You know the hearts of men and women. You search our hearts. You know every detail, every thought that we have. You know everyone in here that is truly your child and has put their faith in Christ alone based on the promises of your word. And so, Lord, by the testimony of not raising our hands, it is the testimony of this group that we are all ready. But, Lord, if someone is not ready, would you make them so uncomfortable that they seek help? Lord, give us an opportunity. Would you in your patience draw them if anyone is not ready? And, Lord, may those of us who are ready deep in our faith to where we are able to rest and have peace and comfort and go to sleep tonight physically knowing that no matter what happens, we're prepared by your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming. Have a great week.